All right, if you would please open in the Bible to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. We're continuing our series, working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We've called this sermon series, which we'll see on the cover of the bulletin, The King and His Kingdom. And we're going to learn a little bit more about his kingdom and about this king as we look at this passage. You'll find it in the Bible on page 809 in the Pew Bible, I think. Or you can find it on page 8 in the Sunday Bulletin. Uh, both places you'll find the same text, the ESV uh, version of this Bible passage. If you would please stand. This is a reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd be pleased this morning to send your Holy Spirit upon us, that, Father, you would pry open our cold, resistant hearts and give us grace, that we might hear your word, Father, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I, for one, have been enjoying looking at the Gospel of Matthew and sort of walking through the unfolding ministry of Jesus that Matthew wants to tell us about. Uh, I've been at Metrocrest for two years. Uh, this coming month will mark two years after being uh, installed as your senior pastor. And this is the first time since I've been here that we've actually taken some time to actually walk through a gospel. We talk about the gospel all the time, but it's very, very helpful every once in a while uh, to stop and actually look at a book a gospel and see as the gospel writer tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that's what we're going to do this morning. This is uh, an interesting passage. It has to do with the follow-up to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. If you were here last Sunday, uh, you will know that we looked at the beginning verses of uh, Matthew chapter 4, which is the telling, according to Matthew, of Jesus' temptation by the devil in the wilderness. It's a very significant story. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story in slightly different versions, but the story outline is essentially the same. Uh, Jesus was tempted by the devil. And what we're reading about today is the, the next step in the unfolding work of the Lord. And uh, it is very significant, I think, for us to be thinking about this today because it's going to shed some light on the baptism we're going to have in just a couple of minutes uh, when Mike and Alana come forward uh, supported by their loving family and friends uh, to present themselves to the Lord to receive the mark of baptism. So it's, it's providential that we're going to be looking today at this passage. I think it will shed some light for them and hopefully for all of us as we think through the, well, the, the call of the gospel in our lives. I want to introduce you to three points that I'm going to try to preach my way through, uh, and you'll be able to follow along and figure out where we're headed. Three points. First, the message. Second, the messengers. And thirdly, our method. Um, the goal is to finish up in 30 minutes or less. Let's take a look at that, the message. Uh, this is very important. It's where our reading begins, and it's very important because it's going to describe for us what Jesus came to proclaim, all right? Uh, it says in verse 12, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Uh, this is the immediate follow-up to Jesus' baptism of his own. He was baptized by John in the River Jordan. He immediately, it says, go, went into the wilderness. He was led there by the Holy Spirit. He was there for 40 days. So the 40 days after his baptism, I want to assure Mike and Alana, we're not going to demand that you have a 40-day fast starting tomorrow. Uh, but Jesus did. Jesus went uh, from his baptism to the wilderness where he endured 40 days. Not only the challenge of a 40-day fast, but during the fast, at his weakest, Satan and he were in what I called last Sunday a kind of cage match where the Lord Jesus in one corner was against Satan in the other corner. And we were able to watch as we read through Matthew's story about Jesus as he dealt with the clever attacks of Satan, how he hurled at Jesus all the temptations he could muster, all the, 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 the ref most refined temptations. Uh, he, Satan didn't waste his time throwing at Jesus the temptations that would get me or probably you. He focuses in his engagement with Jesus on temptations that are almost unimaginable to me. And, and we saw how the Lord uh, dealt with the clever assaults of Satan each time by turning to the Bible, but also each time staying true to his mission. He understood himself as having a God-given mission. He would not be deterred. He would not take a side road. And Satan ends the story in complete defeat. He goes away and the angels, it says, minister to Jesus in verse 11. So from there, Jesus hears that 
John the Baptist has been arrested. The man who baptized him, his cousin, by the way, Luke lets us know that John and Jesus are actually kinspeople. He hears his cousin's been arrested by uh, the authorities, and Jesus withdrew uh, from Nazareth, where he'd been raised, uh, and, and he went from there into further into Galilee to another place called Capernaum. And actually, Capernaum becomes, in a sense, the new center for Jesus' ministry. We'll read a lot about Capernaum. It was another city in this same area. And it was part of the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the tribes of Israel. And uh, it is to Capernaum that Jesus goes. And the rest of the story, picking up here, is going to be in and around that, that area. And so Jesus goes there. And it's here where we learn about Jesus' message in verse 17. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's a summary statement. Jesus gave long sermons. Uh, he was capable of talking a great deal of time about what that meant. But it boiled down, according to Matthew, to this simple thing. Repent. There's a reason you should repent. Repent. You know, I think that message is sometimes misunderstood by us. The message that Jesus was preaching. Uh, we sometimes misunderstand repent and think instead of something like quit sinning. Um, Jesus has a lot to say about sin. Uh, Jesus acknowledges sin. Jesus was tempted to sin. He understands sin in a way that you and I really don't. Because as we saw last Sunday, uh, I confess to you that I usually give out on the sin temptation meter at about a three or two and a half. Leslie might tell you a one. I don't know. I, I'm not really good at it. But Jesus went not to one or five or seven, eight, nine. He went to the maximum temptation to sin. So Jesus understands the reality of sin. He understands the temptation to sin in a way that you and I hardly understand it because we give in so much more quickly. So Jesus says repent, but I want you to know that when he says repent, he is not saying quit sinning, quit giving in to the temptation of sin. Those thoughts usually come to our mind. That's what we usually mean. Sometimes when we say repent, what we actually mean is confess your sins, which we just did. We think that repentance means confess your sins. But actually... Confessing our sins is a fruit of repentance. It is not repentance. Um, resisting temptation is not repentance. It is the fruit of repentance. The Greek word for repent is metanoia. We support a prison ministry at Metrocrest called Metanoia Ministry to men and women locked up in prison. We call this ministry of the PCA Metanoia. Well, Metanoia actually means something like change your mind. I mean, it's literally what the word is. Meta is along with, Noia is mind, thought, mind. Change your mind. Change your mind, Jesus is saying. Now, 
if we heed what Jesus says here and elsewhere, we will understand that changing our mind is going to have major implications for our moral life, the way we make decisions. It's going to bring us to acknowledging our sin. As we change our minds, as we're led to do so by the Spirit, it's going to have implications for every decision we ever make, including resisting temptation, including confessing our sins. But those things actually flow from something more fundamental, which is what Jesus preached. What he preached was not quit sitting. What, he pre- what he's preaching is quit being separate from me. Quit facing away from the covenant God of Israel. Israel had turned its back on its covenant God. Some of them made a lot about resisting sin and doing good things. They had a long list of rules, and that's the way they defined their religion, was keeping the rules. And sadly, all too often, we can think Christianity boils down to keeping the rules. But that is not what Jesus began to preach. He began to preach to the people there in Galilee of the nations, Change your mind. And he gives a reason. Change your mind because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he has a message and he, and he attaches to it this idea of kingdom. Change your mind for kingdom is at hand. The king, the coming of his reign is at hand. And that's where Jesus begins his preaching. That's what he is going to be saying in all the other sermons that he preaches in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and elsewhere. He's going to be unpacking what it means to change your mind. To, if you will, change the direction you're facing. That's what Jesus called people to do. Which isn't very far from what John the Baptist was doing. If you look at chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist Well, Matthew here sums it up in exactly the same words. Now, the baptism of John was different from the baptism of the Christian faith we'll read about at the end of the gospel. But there was this connection. They were were the fruit, they were the result of this same message, word for word the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what John preached in uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. It's what Jesus preaches in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. This central message defines what Jesus went out to proclaim as he made his way through uh, the Galilee of the nations. Galilee is a, is a very old word uh, that means, well, it basically means circle or region, the region of the nations, the Galilee of the nations. Jesus here in Nazareth, which is sort of the the fringes of the Jewish community, there Jesus preaches this message of repentance. Change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, That will have implications for you and me. If that's what John the Baptist preached, summing up what he found in the Old Testament, and if that's what the Lord Jesus preached, well, That will have implications for the message that you and I preach. Uh, It will mean, for instance, that our message uh, will not be quit sinning. That will not be our message if we're going to be like Jesus. Now, 
We hope people will quit sinning. We hope as they change their mind, they will, they will quit sinning. And actually the fruit of the Spirit will mean that they will move in Christ's likeness. They will move towards Him. As they face Him, they'll be led towards Him. It'll be an interaction between the work of the Spirit, the Holy Scriptures applied to their hearts, and they're being changed as, as God works in their lives. And that will be the message that we proclaim. I think it would be a very interesting thing to experiment with what God will do with a church that actually preaches his message. Change your mind. Be, Be transformed. We're not here to yell at you. We're not here to condemn you. We're not here to put you down. We're certainly not here to judge you and tell you how awful you are. You know, sadly, 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 that is how the church is often perceived, that we're just a bunch of legalists. Uh, this week was the birthday of uh, one of my favorite poets, Robert Burns, uh, which was also, I think, Kristen uh, McAnally's, one of your favorite poets. He is a mess. Robert Burns is a mess. I will not for one second hold Robert Burns up as a moral example. He was actually a Presbyterian. He was actually a member of the Church of Scotland, a dues-paying member of the Church of Scotland, who was buried in a Church of Scotland churchyard. But morally, his life was a mess. He was unfaithful to his wife. It just seems like God gave him this incredible ability to to communicate. And at the same time, he had this incredible weakness, this sin tendency. And it's, it's sad to see the life story of Robert Burns. But when we think about Robert Burns, I tell you what I think of. I think of sinners in the world. How do we approach them? How do we reach out? What is the message we take to them? Is it you're awful? You're terrible? You're going to hell? Judgment, judgment, judgment. Or is it we care about you? We want you to learn about Jesus And the promises of the gospel. Is it a pushing away or an inviting in? Which is our message? Well, in Robert Burns' day, I'll tell you at least what he thought. He thought the church was full of a bunch of hypocrites who were all about putting other people down. Now, he was a sinner. No doubt his perceptions were skewed like our perceptions are skewed. But let me tell you this, he wasn't the only one who's ever thought that about the church. No, our calling is to bring a message of changed lives through connection through a loving king, a holy king who is a loving king. So it's why every Sunday we come into this room And we say to our loving king, I have sinned. I mean, if you just think about that, we come into the presence of a holy God and we say to him, I've done the things you've told me not to do. I've failed to do the things that you've told me to do. I confess that to you. I confess it to my brothers and sisters. I want to confess it to the whole world. Some people think the church is for people who are completely free of sin no, the church is, for the, is the place for sinners who know we're sinners, 
who respond to this message of, of changing our minds, looking towards Jesus. And then our lives over time are transformed. We become a little bit more like Jesus. That's the message that he preached. And brothers and sisters, as we stand at the beginning of a new year at MetroCrest, my hope and my earnest prayer is that we will put that message front and center in the way we present ourselves to one another, the way we present ourselves to the community, that we will be the church that loves sinners, like Jesus loves sinners, reaches out to them. So the message and John's going, sorry, Matthew's going to go on to unpack this as we see how Jesus lives that out. Second thing, let's pay attention to the messengers. Now, there's one great messenger, the Lord Jesus himself. He is our example, our model. But he's also our motivation. We're, we're people who are motivated to follow him because we love him. And that's kind of what happens here. It's, it's actually an example, an example of, well, you know, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. This is going to be an example of I, irresistible grace. All right? Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, immediately, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is a a little picture of how the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to show himself to be Lord over sin and death and the devil, is also Lord over us. And there is sovereign authority with his call. There's sovereign authority as he chooses these messengers. And that's exactly what they're chosen to be. It's interesting, as Jesus interacts with first Peter and Andrew and then James and John. He doesn't say, come, follow me, and I will make you sinless. He doesn't say, come and follow me, and I will make you a moral example for everybody. Hopefully there will be much fruit of the Spirit to help transform lives. But, but that's not what Jesus emphasizes as he calls these messengers. What he calls is, what he says to them is, Come and follow me, and I will make you, like myself, a fisher of men. What he's doing is, he's not giving them a to-do list. He's inviting them to be a part of his work. He's calling them to engage in his work. Those are the messengers we read about first here in the gospel. These are the messengers, those chosen to be part of this this mission activity that Jesus began and which we are called to be a part of. Uh, this morning in our um, leadership training class, I, I told all the members of the leadership training class to just brace themselves because I'm going to quote them all the time. We have a great time in the class. And 
we were talking a little bit about the church and about covenant and some of the things related to the kingdom. And one of the young men in the class said, you know, the church is called to not be a defensive place where we hide behind the wall, sort of raise the drawbridge, and we're involved in this war, and we're, we're in a defensive posture. No, the Lord said that the gates, the gates of hell will not resist the kingdom of God. The kingdom of hell, the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. And that's what we're called to be a part of. We are a part of the mission army, to use a secular word that gets the idea. We're, we're engaged bringing this message to a desperately needy world. And that's what the original apostles were called to be a part of. And their life is going to be very much like that as was Paul's. We're naive if we think that being a Christian means everything's going to be easy for us. No, life will be complicated in ways it was not before. Mike, Alana, your life is not going to get super simple because you're getting baptized. Chances are, as Christians, you will be faced with challenges in your walk. You'll be faced with opportunities. You'll be faced with things that are difficult for you to do. But Jesus is with you as he was with the apostles. He will be with us. He will strengthen us to do what we're called to do, to take his message to the world. We're called to be messengers like that. And his spirit at work around us, in us, through us, in spite of us, he's going to be working in us, helping us, empowering us to do what we cannot do alone. And that begins with the Holy Spirit that grabs hold of us, that applies his word to our hearts, and we respond to him. That's what, that's what they do. They immediately do this. I don't think the point really is the, the timing, the chronology. It's significant and striking that in these initial stories, it's immediate. But the emphasis really isn't on the quickness of it. The emphasis is on the sovereignty of it, the guaranteedness of it, the power of it. The Jesus we learn about in Matthew's gospel is the sovereign Jesus. And when he calls out to a person, whether it takes a second, a minute, a year, or ten years, as he calls people sovereignly to himself, the point is, Jesus is Lord over that. Jesus is sovereign Lord over that. And as he calls us, as he transforms us, as he works in our lives and in the circumstances of our lives, in all these different ways, as that all in God's perfect sovereign plan works its way out, you and I are transformed. We become part of this team, this army of messengers. powerful thing it's a beautiful thing and it's part of baptism it's part of the christian walk that we're part of that so jesus uh, describes these these uh, or matthew describes jesus's first deputized messengers they were they were called to be a part of taking the message that he had proclaimed and now they are called to proclaim it they're part of making that sovereign call 
reaching out to people as we become like they were fishers of men. It's, a, it's interesting that the, the first disciples we learn about are all fishermen. I think there's a, a providential point in that. It wasn't complicated for them to figure out this idea of being used to, to bring a harvest, to bring a bountiful catch. They, they understood that. That's what they did. They were fishermen. Well, Jesus is saying, well, what you did as fishermen, now you're going to be doing as a messenger of the gospel in a deeply personal way, in a, in a way that is like fishing. You're going to be taking this message and you're going to be bringing a bountiful catch. In fact, later in the gospel, We'll read that very point being made when they get a, a catch too big for them. They didn't know what to do about it. They weren't expecting it. Because we never really expect for the Lord to do exactly what he promised. You know, we, we forget that that sovereign Lord has power and he's working in us and through us. So, the message and the messengers... I want to draw your attention as we wrap up at the method. There was a method to what Jesus did. Everybody has a method. If you go fishing, you have a method. Well, Jesus had a method. He says, Matthew says in verse 23, Jesus went throughout all Galilee. Remember, this is the, the margin of Israel. This isn't the big city of Jerusalem. He's going to go there. He has ministry there. has a lot of important work to do there. But here he goes throughout all Galilee, which is this marginal area full of all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of people. It's a wilderness in more ways than one. Well, he, he went throughout that area. And what did he do? He taught in their synagogues and he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. That was his method. He, he didn't have a dog and pony show. He didn't have some super refined strategy worked out. You know, we live in a very uh, strategy-oriented time. We're all supposed to have a strategy for everything. Go to seminary, they'll try to teach you how to make a strategy to plant a church or a strategy to grow a church, and it usually boils down to a 25-page document that no one ever reads and has very little significance in the life of the church. Well, Jesus doesn't, according to Matthew, come with some big strategy he has a method, and the method is simple. We'll read about it later in the parable of the sower. What he does is he comes in and he just proclaims. He teaches. He goes out to the world. That's a very important message for us. This idea of a method of going out. Um, some will know that today is John Brown's birthday. Uh, John Brown, who worked here at Metrocrest, and I, I loved as a brother in Christ, and I know many of you knew and loved John Brown. In fact, I just confirmed, I, I remembered these stories, I just confirmed, talking to a few people here at church this morning, how John Brown was so helpful and so essential and important in their not only coming to Metrocrest, but their coming into a deeper faith. I uh, asked uh, David Walmsley, I said, didn't you tell me that John Brown helped you guys kind of find your way to Metrocrest? And, and uh, David said, well, he came to our house and helped us move in. Uh, and he, he helped us literally by coming out to us. 
and proclaiming in word and in deed the love of Jesus Christ. Well, when John did that, it wasn't just because he was a super friendly guy with a bubbly personality. He was those things. But he was a faithful messenger using Jesus' method. See, what he did was his whole strategy, John's whole strategy was he used his life to proclaim the message. He lived it out. So when he preached, and all a preacher can ever do is try his best, when he preached, what he was trying to do was use words to describe the love of Jesus Christ that had changed his own life and that he believed would change the lives of other people. Beautiful method. Uh, Some of you were at the, in fact, a lot of you were at the little dedication yesterday i brought a stack of these i think there were about 30 plus people from metrocrest who were at uh, the dedication of the new john brown family disaster response center and i brought a bunch of if you'd like to get one of these please take one with you and by the way we're so committed are we to living out our faith we actually have a, a real live brown here with us today uh, all the way from tennessee came here for the dedication Betsy was here as well, and your brother was here. Thank you for being here with us today, and thank you for sharing your dad with us. We loved him and love him still, and we're very grateful for not only all that he did for us, but also the model, John was, of this very thing, this idea of going out to people. And notice what Matthew adds about the people that Jesus went to, the people who, in response to him, were coming to him. Uh, It says, that as, as his fame spread throughout all Syria, in other words, this message was spreading, and it says uh, they began to bring all these other people, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Now, let me tell you, that is not saying that every church should become a faith-healing tabernacle where we guarantee people if you'll come to us we'll heal you Uh, there's a lot of that religion being taught you can decide for yourself what you think about that but that's not the point of that passage the point of the passage is Jesus came to deal with sick people they were the ones who responded to him the people who felt they were well and he, he says this in Luke's gospel who refused to admit they needed a doctor, did not respond to Jesus. The people who responded to Jesus were the people he knew how sick they were. It's hard for us to understand this because we think of life in terms of what we can experience with our senses. And we, we tend to think of life as a very clipped experience. But actually... It is a blessing to know how much we need Jesus. It is actually better to be born with a severe handicap and know the need of Jesus Christ than to be born an Olympic athlete who doesn't know it and doesn't care about it. It's actually better to have an awareness of need. That's why Paul talks so openly about his brokenness and his, his sin and his failures. 
he didn't talk about his sinlessness. He didn't talk about what a wonderful person he was. In fact, what he boasted in, he said himself, was his weakness, his failures, his infirmities. And right here at the beginning of, of Matthew's gospel, as Jesus is beginning his work, those are the people that we read about who are responding. He went out to everyone. He sowed throughout Galilee, went to the synagogues. He went about all of Galilee proclaiming the gospel. And the people that responded were the ones who knew how much they needed the gospel. Now that method will affect the way we do our ministry at Metrocrest. We will know how important it is for us to reach out to the marginalized, the weak, the infirm, the people who need help. We won't look down on them. We won't judge the Robert Burnses. We'll, we'll actually have a special heart for them, a special interest in them. It does not mean we look the other way at sin. It does not mean we pretend those things don't matter. But we actually consciously, intentionally reach out to them. And it is so counterintuitive because we like to hang around people like ourselves. We like to hang around people who've learned a little bit and they've got some manners. And, and that's, that's where we're, we're, we're typically drawn. And yet the example of Jesus' method is the opposite that what we need to do is reach out to the ones in desperate need of the gospel. And, and sometimes the Lord will bring them to himself, and sometimes we won't see any fruit. The fruit's not up to us. But the method has been entrusted to us. The mission has been entrusted to us, the next generation of messengers. And that's what we're called to do. And as we start a new year, We'll be thinking about that in just a moment at our congregational meeting as we start a new year. Let's do it with this heart of sharing the life-changing message of Jesus with other people who desperately need the life-changing message of Jesus. Well, that's, I believe, what Matthew wants us to learn from this story. You, you decide for yourself, you read the Bible, that I'm convinced that's what he's teaching us, what he's going to continue to show us over and over and over again and what we'll be learning to do as we walk with Christ.